Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 31 of the History, Books, and Wine podcast. Lori Ann Bailey here, and I'm your host this week. I'm a National Reader's Choice and Holt Medallion award-winning author who writes Scottish historicals with hot Highland heroes and spunky independent lasses finding their perfect matches in the Scottish Highlands. Last week, you heard Eliza Knight talk about some forms of torture that she has researched and next week you will get Madeline. We switched places this time just to confuse you guys. No really she's on a marvelous vacation and I'm sure she'll tell you about it next week. So uh, this week it's me but before I get started I have to tell you about what I am drinking. And since this week's episode is about torture I came across this bottle and I thought it just sounded perfect because it's called Hope's End. And I thought, like, isn't that the coolest thing when you're talking about torture? Because when when you're being tortured, there's just seems like there's no hope. But if you read the bottle a little bit closer, you'll find out that it's not necessarily about ominous things. Hope's End. Run away to the dark side, to a place called Port Misery, South Australia. This is a red blend from 2017. And on the back it says, This dark brooding wine is a tribute to the brave souls who set sail to the dark side of the world in search of a better life and arrived to find hope's end. In that moment they stopped hoping for a better tomorrow and instead lived for the day. Soft, lush boysenberry marmalade and cherry jam laced with subtle new oak this red blend is intriguing and indulgent silky velvet smooth on the palate showing hints of vanilla and chocolate the flavors linger long after the last sip and i'm going to have a sip right now and to be honest i opened this a little bit earlier because diving into this torture stuff is not easy for me I am one of those people who turns away when something is happening on TV. I can't handle the sight of blood. I'm very squeamish and don't ever trust me with any national secrets because I'm telling you right now, I can't handle it. Now, on to torture. I've picked three different forms of torture and an example of each this week. My first is torture for information and this is the Chinese water torture which is the process of water slowly dripping onto someone's uh, scalp or forehead when typically that person is restrained and this is meant to make the victim go insane. This form of torture was invented by Hippolytus de Marsilius in Italy in the 15th or 16th century. And this is because he observed how drops 
of water falling onto stone gradually created a hollow area. So he decided this would be awesome to apply to the human body. And I read up a little bit on this guy. He also came up with some other forms of torture, which we're not going to discuss today because three forms is enough for me to be talking about. It's reported that in some instances of using Chinese water torture, which is not what it was called at the time, the victim would be stripped of their clothing, shown to the public, then tortured while the crowds jeered and mocked them. The term Chinese water torture may have come from Harry Houdini, who did an escapology trick in Berlin at Circus Bush in 1912, where he was bound and suspended upside down in locked glass and steel cabinet overflowing with water, from which, of course, he escaped. The other rumor is that the term Chinese water torture may have come from an author named Sax Romer, who wrote stories called Fu Manchu tales that were popular in the 1930s. There isn't a lot of evidence pertaining to the effectiveness of using Chinese water torture, but I have to think that it would drive me completely insane because I'm that kind of person that can't even handle the clock ticking at night while I'm trying to go to sleep. So I can't imagine just the combination of the feel of the water dropping on your forehead along with whatever sound went with it, plus being restrained. That's, oh, talk about me breaking down. That would be it. So again, do not trust me with your secrets if someone might wish to try this on me. The television series Mythbusters also investigated the effectiveness of Chinese water torture. In one of its episodes, uh, I think it was in season, let's see, 25, no, episode 25 of the 2005 season, and found that it was extremely useful. They eventually deemed Chinese water torture too plausible to risk complete confirmation. So looks like they shut that one down. I may have to go back and watch that episode. My second form of torture today is torture to punish someone. And for this, I picked out the wheel. Doesn't that already sound ominous? Now, all you had to do was show me this thing and I'd be singing whatever tune you wanted because it's pretty scary. And when you hear about it, yeah, no, I'd be talking or I wouldn't be doing the crimes because technically this one isn't about getting information. This one is about punishment. The breaking wheel was a torture device that most of the times resulted in death. If you were lucky, a victim would be tied to the spokes of a very large wheel and their bodies would be bent and contorted to match its shape. Once on the wheel, they would be bludgeoned repeatedly in order to break every bone in their body. Once their bones were shattered, they were usually decapitated or had their throats slit, but they were sometimes left alive to suffer in agony. The wheel is associated with the execution of St. Catherine of Alexandria, and that was in 305 BCE. And this was during the prosecution of Christians under Emperor Maxentius. Catherine, 
who was a devout Christian follower, was imprisoned and sentenced to die on a breaking wheel. According to legend, when Catherine touched the wheel, it broke in half. After the wheel didn't work, Maxentius had Catherine beheaded. So even though the wheel broke, she didn't escape death. Nearly a thousand years later, Joan of Arc claimed to have heard voices from Catherine who inspired her on her own path to martyrdom. And if you want to hear more about Joan of Arc, you can go back and listen to episode 20 of the History Books and Wine podcast, where I give you all kinds of information on her. Later on, people convicted as murderers and who committed robberies were to be executed by the wheel. This was sometimes called to be wheeled or broken by the wheel. Usually the spectacle took place in front of the public. And the primary goal of the first part of being wheeled was the agonizing mutilation of the body, not death. Therefore, the most common form would start with breaking the leg bones. Depending on your crime, the executioner might start with your upper body or the lower body. Believe it or not, striking up top first was considered more lenient because death would come quicker. Sometimes the executioner could be instructed to execute the convicted person at the end of the first act by aiming for the neck or heart in an act of mercy. If you were unlucky enough to survive this part of the torture, your body could either be braided into the spokes of the wheel, which was possible because of your broken limbs, or you were tied to the wheel. The wheel was then erected on the mast or pole for display. Sometimes the victim would be garroted or burned afterwards, but if you were still even unluckier, you remained on the wheel, alive where you were subject to scavenging animals. But here's where you could get lucky. If you fell from the wheel, it was considered God's intervention and you were free to limp or crawl or be carried away, whatever worked for you. The survival time after being wheeled or broken could be longer than you'd expect. Accounts exist of a 14th century murderer who remained conscious for three days after undergoing the punishment. In 1348, during the time of the Black Death, a Jewish man named Bona Dies underwent the punishment. The authorities stated he remained conscious for four days and nights afterwards. In 1581, there is a possibility that this fictitious German serial killer, Christman, oh my gosh, I can't even say his last name, but he was probably fictitious, so we're just going to skip over that last name anyway, remained conscious for nine days on the breaking wheel before expiring because they had deliberately kept him alive with strong drink. Now on to number three, which is a completely different topic. It's torture for beauty, foot binding. Chinese foot binding is an ancient tradition of beauty and torture passed from mother to daughter for generations and it lasted for almost a thousand years. Foot binding was seen as a sign of beauty and attractiveness. 
Once a girl was of marriageable age, a prospective mother-in-law would come around and pick a wife for her son based on the appearance of the girl's feet. Bound feet were a sign of prosperity because it meant the woman wasn't needed for work because she couldn't walk very well. It was also a sign that a woman could be an obedient wife, also because she couldn't run away. The bound foot was a symbol of identity and virtue. Foot binding was not considered mutilation, but a form of adornment and embellishment to the human body. According to historical account, it was around 970 AD during the rule of Emperor Li Yu, the custom of foot binding began in China. The ruler's favorite consort, Yao Nyang, performed a dance atop a golden lotus pedestal. She wrapped her feet in long strips of silk cloth, and from that day on, foot binding was associated with the term golden lotus. I had read a book, and I can't remember the title of it now, and it has a lot of information on foot binding, but I just remember being horrified by what they go through during this process. Foot binding was practiced in China from about the 10th century, and it didn't end until 1911. So that was just a little over 100 years ago. With a girl, the process would start at a very young age while her feet were still in that pre-bone cartilage stage, and it made the girl's feet easier to be broken and molded into the shape of the golden lotus flower. Traditionally, the foot binding begins with the clipping of the toenails and the soaking of the feet, which was done in either hot water or a concoction of ingredients ranging from various herbs and nuts. This is to soften the tissue and bones of the foot in order to facilitate manipulation. The feet are massaged and doused with alum. Then all the toes on the foot, except for the big one, are broken and folded under the sole. Yep, you got that. They break the little girlie's toes. Crazy. And then fold them up under the bottom of the foot. The toes are then bound in place with a silk or cotton bandage. And every two days, the wrappings would be removed and they would carefully wash the feet so that the chance of infection went down. Then they would rewrap them. The arch of the foot is also broken and the foot is pulled straight with the leg. Gradually, the sizes of the shoe that the girls wore are reduced in order to accommodate the shrinking feet. This has got to be the worst part here. To encourage the feet to achieve the desired confirmation, the girls are forced to walk long distances so that their own weight crushes their feet into shape. In earlier years, the washing of the bindings is carried out by the mother. As time passes, the girls themselves tighten their bandages on their own. At the end of two years of excruciating pain, a pair of tiny folded feet is seen. But to make sure that the toes stay in place, this foot binding process is carried out for an additional 10 years. So all that pain so that you couldn't even walk. All right, now let's move on to something pleasant. What I'm reading this week 
I picked up something completely different for me. And I think it's just because I'm in the mood for a change. So this month I'm reading Katie Ruggles' Rocky Mountain Cowboy Christmas, which is something completely different for me. And it could be just because I need a change in what I'm reading, or it also could be that it's almost the middle of September and it's still really hot here and I'm craving my cool fall weather. So now I'm just going to read about Christmas. And here's a little bit about the book. In the Heart of the Rockies, one white Christmas can change everything. When firefighter and single dad Steve Springfield move his four kids to a Colorado Christmas tree ranch, he intended for it to be a safe haven, but he never expected danger to follow them to his childhood home or that he would come face to face with the one girl he could never forget. Folk artist Camille Brandt lives a quiet life. As the town's resident eccentric, she's used to being lonely until Steve freaking Springfield changes everything. Brave and kind, he's always had a piece of her heart, and it doesn't take long before she's in danger of falling for him again. But as mysterious fires break out across the sleepy Colorado town, Steve and Camille will have to fight if they want their happy family to survive until Christmas. I'm looking forward to diving into this one, and I hope the weather cools off while I'm reading it and I can have a nice cup of hot tea. And I will put the link to this book in the show notes. And now I have to recommend one of my books, and I'm going to recommend Highland Deception, which is book one in the Highland Pride series. And I'm recommending this one because book five comes out later in the month. And I'm just wanting to kick it back to where it all began with my Holt Medallion and National Reader's Choice award-winning debut. Scotland, 1642. Maggie and Lachlan must fight their growing attraction, battling suspicion and intrigue as religious and political turmoil threaten to tear their clans apart. He has sworn he will never marry. Lachlan Cameron is honor-bound to see a wounded last to safety. Although he has well-learned women are deceivers, and this lovely maid harbors a wealth of secrets, but Maggie's free spirit and charms enthrall him while he works to discover if she is innocent or a spy scheming with his enemies to destroy his clan. She has sworn she will never fall in love. Maggie Murray fled her home to avoid a political marriage to an abusive man. Salvation comes when the Cameron Laird, unaware of her identity, protects her as she escapes. His kindness slowly warms her, and she's tempted to confess her real name. But his strong sense of honor would force him to return her to her father and torment at the hands of her scorned betrothed. So I'll also include a link for this book in the show notes. And now it's time for a reader question. And this week's question comes from Emily. What made you choose the time period you write in? All the Highland Pride books are set in uh, 17th century Scotland. And I think those were set there mostly because that's the time period I knew the best. I had been reading up on that time period. 
I had also read a lot of Paula Quinn's books. She also deals with that time period and the religious turmoil that's going on then. Of course, now I know just about every period in Scottish history has turmoil. And I have since written about Mary, Queen of Scots, who I'm fascinated with, and that's in a different time period. And now I'm writing a Regency Scotland uh, series, so that's different. And I'm also working on something that's medieval. So right now I'm all over the place, and as long as it's about Scotland, I'm okay with whatever time period it's in. We still have our happy hour coming up where we'll discuss more ways to torture people. I have a reader question for you guys. Do you have any means of torture that you're curious about? Email us and we'll do the research for you so you don't have to see all those crazy things that I had to look at when I saw these names of torture devices and I could not even go in and read the descriptions because some of them were a little too graphic just in the names of them so that's why I started drinking early I was getting a little queasy but if you write in uh write in to let us know which ones you're curious about I will do that research for you or Eliza or Madeline will and we'll have that on our show in two weeks and speaking of reader interaction I just wanted to let you guys know a few episodes ago we asked the question what are your favorite historical movies and I thought I would share one of the responses we received this was from Candy I have two that are based on reality plus Hollywood El Cid which has a Spanish hero and Kingdom of Heaven enjoy your podcasts and applaud all the research you do, Candy. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Candy. I cannot wait to check out those movies. I haven't done it yet, but I definitely have them on my list of things to watch. And so happy you're enjoying the podcast. We're having lots of fun doing the research. Email us your answers or questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Maybe we'll share it on a future podcast. Next week, Madeline Martin will return on September 19th with more on various means of historical torture. And then we'll have our happy hour on September 26th, where Eliza Knight, Madeline Martin, and I will be closing out our series on ways of punishing or making people talk with more gruesome details on torture. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com where we will have the show notes for today's episode. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. History Books and Wine can also be found on Spotify. And if you say, Alexa, play History Books and Wine podcast, she'll play the most recent episode. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review, recommend us to your friends, and remember you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Have a wonderful week.